John chapter 11. Last week as we finished up, um, I told you the story of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. Jim, if you remember, uh, you may have heard this story before. He was one of the men who were killed by the Alca Indians in um, Ecuador in, uh, I think it was 1956. They were trying to make contact with them for the sake of the gospel. One of the most famous quotes of Jim Elliot was this. He wrote in his journal, and then his wife, after she published her book um, through Gates of Splendor, she, she found it and put it in the book. And He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to get what he cannot lose. So as I was reflecting on this passage, I, I kind of wanted to tell you a little bit about another man on that trip, a man by the name of Nate Saint. Um, I found a good article on Answers in Genesis website, and I just want to read a little bit of that. Nate Saint was born in 1923 to a Christian family dedicated to serving the Lord and living for Him. Nate was a curious boy who loved airplanes and wanted to be a pilot like his older brother. So when he was 19, he signed up for the U.S. Army to serve in World War II and learned to fly airplanes. But a previous uh, injury in his leg prohibited him. He wasn't allowed to fly. And so after three years in the army, he did, uh, however, learn a lot about airplanes and became an airplane mechanic. He learned how to fix them. After he left the army, a missionary asked Nate to come to Mexico to help fix a badly damaged airplane there. And so he went and decided to serve Christ by being a missionary pilot. He married his girlfriend, Marjorie, and they headed for South America to the country of Ecuador to open a new missionary station. It was a missionary aviation fellowship. They were going to open a new station there. Nate's job was to fly missionaries into the remote jungle villages and then also to bring them supplies. It was a dangerous job. And yet when a, when a crash um, left Nate Saint with a broken back and a badly sprained ankle, he didn't stop. In fact, he recovered pretty quickly and got right back into it. The supplies that Nate dropped off, often they'd get, you can imagine, in the Amazon jungle, the Central American jungles, South American jungles, they would get caught in the trees or they would break as they fell from an airplane. And so he invented a bucket drop system. He would fly in tight circles with a bucket containing supplies so they could be lowered from the airplane. And then the bucket would remain still so that the missionaries could run in and unload them. He also invented a a dual injection engine that made flying safer, and I guess his inventions are still being used today. Well, Nate and four friends had this burden to reach remote people group of the Aucas there in Ecuador. The Aucas were very dangerous. They were known for killing anyone who would dare come close or come into their territory. And so they used his bucket system, and they sent gifts for months to the Aucas, expressions of friendliness. And they started sending gifts back. And so the missionaries decided at one point to land the plane on a sandbar and to make personal contact with them. That flight would be Nate Saint's last flight. He and the others were all killed by the Aucas spears there in the river. He died serving the Lord, taking the gospel where it had never been taken before. But we know that's not the end of the story. In fact, his sister Rachel, along with Elizabeth Elliot, 
uh, Jim Elliott's widow, um, they went back to the same people and shared the gospel with them. Because of the love that they showed to this tribal people, many of them believed in Jesus and were saved, including some of the very exact people who had killed Nate Saint and Jim Elliott and their co-laborers. Nate's son Steve um, joined his Aunt Rachel each summer in the jungle among the tribe that killed his dad. Because he understands the love and grace of God, Steve is friends with the very men who killed his father. They're now his brothers in Christ. Steve and his sister were even baptized there in the river by several Alka Indian believers in the same place where their father died. Steve Saint later was, so Nate's son Steve was injured in another aircraft accident, but he still works to support the mission to the people of Central and South America. And so we could say this, Nate Saint's death was not a waste. God used his and his friends' deaths to help the gospel grow among the Aukas, the the people that they loved, and and really through them to establish and uh, root the faith of so many for generations since then. Jesus' call to follow him, when he says, follow me, it is a call that requires faith and trust. His call to follow him is a call to live in the light as he is the light. John had introduced us to Jesus back at the beginning of the gospel according to John at the very opening of the book. John introduced us to him by saying this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. Listen, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He goes on and says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. It's John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so this morning as we pick up our study where we left off last week in John 11, really verses 7 through 16, last week we looked at really just verses 7 and 8, I want to go ahead again and read the first 16 verses of this chapter. Because as I said last week, it kind of serves as an introduction to the miracle that he is about to perform. And these verses provide for us the the important details of Jesus' private conversations, private discussion with his disciples, kind of in the background. So I said last week that you can imagine um, that since these are real events that really happened in a real space and real time, that the disciples had questions for Jesus after each of the signs and wonders that he had performed. How did you do that? Why did you do it like that? Why would you do that on a Sabbath? You know it drives them crazy. He had all kinds of, they would have all kinds of questions for him. But it's only occasionally that the gospel writers actually 
give us those kinds of conversations. And so here in the introduction to what we call the seventh sign in John's gospel, we see one of those conversations as, as Jesus explains why he is do, what he is doing and why he is doing it. So John 11, these first 16 verses, says this. John 11, 1, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant that he was taking rest in sleep. And Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let's go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Let's just stop and pray one more time. Lord, what we don't have, I pray that you would give us. Help us to understand these things. Give us ears to hear that we may praise your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we uh, looked at verses 7 and 8 last week, we saw that there is a, a danger but also a confusion often in following Jesus. That sometimes he leads us into the, the presence of our enemies and says, sit down and eat, you're safe with me. And remember, not many days after this, I even mentioned this, at the Last Supper, he says, he gives his disciples bread and wine and says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And we know that even today, as often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. His, his death. Jesus said in remembrance, I'm leaving you. Jesus also said of the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. There is danger and even sometimes confusion in following Jesus. And his call to follow him is a call that requires faith and, and trust, but it's also a call that is urgent. This is where we pick up the story this morning. There's an urgency in being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Look again at verses 9 and 10. Jesus answers their questions and says, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, we have to remember 
that this is how Jesus responds to the disciples, uh, their resistance toward returning to Judea. Rabbi, they're trying to kill you there. You want to go there? And then he says this about day and night. Well, in order to understand kind of why Jesus answers their, their confusion and their caution like this, we need to look back a little bit because he said something very similar to this before. Back in chapter 9, just flip back a couple of pages to chapter 9. I want to read the first five verses and notice the parallels to verses 9 and 10 as I read this. So uh, John 9, 1 through 5 says this. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, now listen for the parallels. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And then here, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. You see the connection between day and night or light and dark and and work? Ancient Romans here, verse, um, right at the beginning of verse 9, he says, are there not 12 hours in the day? The ancient Romans, actually the ancient Romans and the ancient Jews, they both kind of divided the day into kind of like 12-hour work days. Where essentially, no matter how many literal hours there were, they would say, day, 12 hours to work, sun up to sundown. 12 hours to rest and relax and sleep. Sundown to sun up. You need to get your work done while the daylight was out, especially in the ancient world. And let me remind you when we're thinking about work, and getting our work done, they're talking about the works of God. I want to go back and just kind of really briefly remind you what those works are. We kind of hit this in chapter 9, but it fits in this section too. The works that that Jesus is alluding to here as he reminds us of of what he had said back there in chapter 9. These are the works of God that that we, his disciples, must work. Works of, of preaching, of proclaiming the gospel. Works of mercy and works of service. Well, the starting point must be This is the base, the foundation that cannot be removed, it can't be weakened, or the whole structure will collapse. The starting point is the the preaching, the proclaiming of the gospel. If you remember back in Mark chapter 1, verse 38, when crowds of people were coming out to to be healed by him and to just see him, and they went to people, everybody, Jesus, everybody is looking for you, and his response was this, Mark 1, 38, let's go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that's why I came out. And what did Jesus preach? Mark tells us in the first, in verses 14 and 15 of Mark chapter 1, he tells us explicitly, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Paul will expand this to include the preaching of the word, all of God's word. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. You can, uh, again, look that up later. And the preaching of the gospel and the preaching of all of the full counsel of God, all of His Word, they're closely related. In fact, you can't 
separate them. You shouldn't separate them. First comes evangelism and then comes the building up of the body of Christ so that it will, it will only endure sound teaching and not be tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine. And second, another of the works of God that we must be working it has to start with preaching of the word. That is of first importance, the foundation. But the other, another of the works of God that we must be working are the works of mercy. This is all over Scripture. James 1.27 Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Works of mercy are Jesus' healings, for example. We've been reading about so many of them in these passages. He has pity and compassion on the crowds and he loves them. Remember Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, it says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. To do what? To do the work of proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. To do the works of mercy. Christians are called to minister to those who suffer. And so I think I've said this before, but maybe we do this through establishing hospitals. Maybe we do this through establishing orphanages. Maybe we do this through giving hugs at the pregnancy center. Or show kindness to broken, blind sinners who come walking through the doors. But I can't stress enough that the foundation for this is the good news of Jesus Christ, that the works of mercy flow out of that. <clears throat> and then, obviously, finally, we must work the works of service as well. And works of service are closely connected to works of mercy, and the line can sometimes be blurry between the two. But I think there are a couple of distinctions. First is that the works of mercy are typically done outside the church and, and often with no hope of any kind of repayment or even recognition. So here in chapter 9, as we read that passage, that blind man who was not a disciple of Jesus Christ at this point, he couldn't pay Jesus anything physically speaking. But on the other hand, works of service are also those things done within the church body, the one another's. Not with the hope of repayment, but with the assurance that we can depend on one another. We can rely on the church serving us if we need it and when we need it. Galatians chapter 5, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And there is an urgency in this work. <clears throat> we need to do these things while it is still day. Nighttime, darkness brings danger, Jesus says. <clears throat> Excuse me. We understand here um, in this passage, as Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's talking to them about, about his time with them on the earth. There really are a couple of other meanings as well as he talks about day and night. Um, John 11 really brings this to the forefront. The earth is getting darker. 
sin and death seem to be growing as the, as the darkness just sort of descends on the land, right? We can see this. Clearly, it was happening in Jesus' day. But we also know there will come a time of judgment, a time when Christ's work of bringing salvation will come to an end. And so as Jesus says these words here in, in verses 9 and 10, kind of by, by way of illusion and, and illustration, He's pointing out two things that we need to see. The first thing is this, we must do those works of God at the appointed time. We can't say we'll do it eventually. We have to do it while it's daytime. Let me throw a little caution here um, as we think about these things. Every generation of mankind, since sin first entered the world and death through sin, ever since God promised an offspring that would crush the head of the serpent, Genesis 3.15, every generation of mankind believed that the day of the Lord was at hand, that God's judgment was nigh, as they say. We should also believe this. And all the more as we see the, as we see the night approaching, as we see the darkness descending upon our land. This is urgent work. Hebrews says, in quoting the Psalms, in quoting the Old Testament several times, today if you see His hand, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Yet what Jesus doesn't explicitly say here is that the daylight is soon passing. Look at this again. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble but because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. The day is soon passing, he's getting at. The end of his time of work is, is coming quickly. Yet, yet we know what the disciples don't quite understand, and that is that the cross is coming up really fast. His time, His day is almost done. Let me add another work to the list of the works of God. A work that Jesus refers to in verse 4. And that is this, it's from 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Ultimately, all of our work is to be done to glorify Him as Jesus is in the process of doing here. Glorifying God. What is the, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. I think there's a little bit more to this answer too. This is why I read the opening of John's Gospel earlier. In, in verses 4 and 5 of that first chapter, John says this, In Him, in Jesus, in the Word, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So as we look at this, there's a, there's a clear connection between light and life. There's a clear connection between darkness and death. And the question of verse 8, the question that they ask Him, which is clearly about the, about the threat that He and the disciples face if they return with Him to Judea. But it's also in the context of, of Lazarus. 
See, Jesus had just said, he had just said to them, this illness does not lead in death. But by the end of the conversation, he's going to tell them that Lazarus is dead. That time had run out for him. So this brings us to the second thing that we need to see here. That is that it, it looks like, it looks like Lazarus has stumbled into the darkness of death. Stumbled into the night, to kind of use Jesus' metaphor here. But there's a problem with that. Because in light of John 8, 12, that can't be the case. Do you remember John 8, 12? Jesus' promise? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. By the end of this scene, Jesus is going to demonstrate this. He's going to demonstrate that that's true by the end of the chapter when he says, Lazarus, come out. As he commands Lazarus to walk out of the darkness of the tomb and into the light of day. So on the one hand, Jesus is using this illustration, these words here, um, to assure his disciples that as long as they are with him, As long as they are with the light, the light of the world, they are secure from stumbling. But on the other hand, the sun is setting on Jesus' ministry, Jesus' earthly ministry. And he's about to tell them what it's going to look like, or that it looks like it's lights out for Lazarus as well. He's about to tell them that. But there's more to life than breathing and grave clothes, right? Right? More to life than swaddling clothes and grave clothes. Jesus uses a play on words to hint at this here. In verse 9, he uses the phrase, he sees the light of the world, right at the end of the verse. He sees the light of the world. And then in verse 10, he switches it to, the light is not in him. There's an, an external and an internal aspect to following Jesus Christ. He is the light of the world. Whoever follows Him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So for the disciples, Jesus is still with them. And He still has much work to do, although His time is coming to a close. The disciples, for their work, they will soon be tasked with carrying on the work of, of gathering more disciples to Christ. And they will be able, they will be able to do this to, to carry on His work because He promised them in the Great Commission, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. You have the light. But by contrast, those who walk in the night, who stumble about in the darkness, they do so because of their own internal condition. They don't have the light of life. See, Jesus is redefining the problem. Their biggest threat here is not that the Jews want to kill them. The biggest threat that, that, that we have is not that there is a sickness that leads to death. That's not our biggest threat. The biggest problem that we have as mankind is that men love darkness rather than the light. That's our biggest threat. 
We love darkness rather than the light. The, the problem is that as, as darkness descends on our land, mankind are go- is going to grow in that love for the darkness more and more and more until the point where God, when God will give up on them. Romans chapter 1, He will give them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. God will give them up to dishonorable passions. God will give them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Those are phrases from Romans chapter 1. And so the time is urgent for followers of Jesus Christ because the darkness is coming. But the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Switch gears here and look at verse 11. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant he was talk, taking a rest in sleep. When the, Jesus told them plainly, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. You can almost imagine here, the disciples saying to themselves, kind of between verses 10 and 11, you can almost imagine them saying, wait, why are we going to Judea again? What? what? I don't understand. And then Jesus gives them a specific reason. But why does he use the term fallen asleep? Why does he even say that? He has to later tell him, well, he's, he's, I mean, he's dead. Why does he say he's fallen asleep? especially with the confusion that it causes them here. Why doesn't he just say that he's died? I want to point out that we do, we do this all the time. Um, we're almost afraid of saying that someone has died. We like to use kind of euphemisms. This week I looked at the Belfontan Examiner's website, and the first five obituaries that came up, just, just the first five, uh, you had to click see more to see the others. So the first five that came up, um, four of them said that the person had passed away. And the fifth said that the person had entered into the presence of his Savior, which is a, actually a really nice way to say it, right? They died. All of them did. Our problem is we don't like to talk about the reality of death because it sounds so harsh. It, it sounds so morbid, and it's supposed to because the wages of sin is death. But Jesus isn't doing that here. He, he's not afraid of talking about that here. That's not what he's doing. In, in contrast to what we do, Jesus is doing something else. He uses the term fallen asleep because he's making an important theological point, and that is this. Death no longer has dominion over Christ's people. Death no longer has dominion over Christ's people. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 whole chapter about the gospel and resurrection. And in verse 50, I want to read this to you. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 50, it says this. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. 
For this imperishable body must put on the Im- this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then it shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death no longer has dominion or victory over Christ's people. Now this verb translated sleep here uh, in John 11, the word that Jesus uses four times in the New Testament, that word actually means sleep, take a nap, right? But 14 times when it is used, most of the time, it's used to mean death, but not a death that ends in death, a death that leads to resurrection. Your friends that have, and family that have trusted in Christ for salvation and yet have fallen asleep, they are one step closer to resurrection than you are. Resurrection. So, so knowing this, consider Jesus' words here in verse 11. He says, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Of course, the disciples don't understand this. Why do you need to wake? He needs some rest. We don't want to wake him up. But John wants to be sure that you understand what Jesus is saying. He's talking about death and resurrection. In Christ is life, and he is about to prove this. He's about to perform another sign, proving that he is, in fact, the Christ, the the Son of God, and that that in him is life, and the light is the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not, cannot, and will never overcome it. Augustine said that this, when he says this, I'm going to go wake him up, that he's talking to his own power. Speaking of his own power, death no longer has dominion over Lazarus. I'm just going to go wake him up. Sure, we find out by the end of the chapter he's been dead for four days. He's just going to wake him up because death no longer has power over him. To the disciples and really to the honest reader, Lazarus' status at this point has now separated him from his sister's And it has placed him in the custody of whatever it is that comes after life, people would say. His status has changed from life to death, and he is no longer in the custody of anybody. But to Jesus, Lazarus hadn't even come close to leaving the custody of the Son. For the Father has given him the authority of life and death. Do you remember back in John chapter 5, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him all authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. 
those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And when we look back on that in light of what's going on here in John chapter 11, the hour is fast approaching when Jesus will call him out of the tomb and call us to life. And for your sake, Jesus says, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let's go to him. So in verse 15, we finally have the answer to the question that verse 4 raised. How will this glorify God and bring glory to the Son? Well, in the immediate... Right then, Jesus is speaking for the, for the benefit of, of the disciples, that you may believe, he says. Jesus isn't happy that Lazarus has died. In fact, he's going to weep over this. He's going to be very deeply troubled in spirit. But he is glad that these things are working together for their good, that they would believe. See, the twelve, the disciples, they're about to believe in resurrection. Not just theoretically, but they're about to believe in resurrection. By the end of this chapter, they're going to believe in resurrection. You can believe that John the Apostle, who wrote this as an eyewitness of these things, you can believe that when he heard Mary Magdalene say, in fact, uh, just let me read from John chapter 20. We skip ahead a little bit. John chapter 20 Verse 1, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. This is, of course, Jesus' tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, John, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter, reached the tomb first, and went stooping to look in. He saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the, the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they didn't understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. You can believe that John remembered this incident, which really didn't happen that much earlier than chapter 20, Jesus' own resurrection and empty tomb. You can believe that John remembered this with Lazarus when he stepped into Jesus' empty tomb and he saw and believed that Jesus must rise from the dead. So, was this the moment the disciples became believers then? Is that what's going on here? And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let's go to him. Well, certainly these men, the twelve, had left all to follow him. They believed that Jesus was something special. Even the Messiah, Nathaniel, had proclaimed all the way back in the first chapter of John. He said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Peter makes a very similar declaration in, in Matthew chapter 16. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
So when do they believe? Leon Morris, in his commentary, explains it like this. He says, I like this. He says, faith is progressive. There are new depths of faith to be plumbed, new heights of faith to be scaled. The raising of Lazarus will have a profound effect on them and give their faith a content that it did not have before. Their faith will be strengthened. The disciples, they wouldn't understand the significance of death and resurrection until they saw Jesus face to face. Even looking in the empty tomb, they still didn't quite understand. They believed, but now they see an empty tomb. What is going on? But then they saw him face to face. And I would argue, I would suspect, we probably won't really comprehend the resurrection of Jesus Christ fully until we see him face to face. Until we see, as Thomas does later, the scars. And we proclaim with Thomas, my Lord and my God, We will grow in our faith. We will plumb the depths of Scripture to strengthen our faith. We will scale the heights of faith as we learn to trust in the one who is faithful and true. And we will be like Thomas. We usually remember Thomas for his doubt, doubting Thomas. But here, I think something different is happening. I don't think we can separate verses 14, 15, and 16. Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Let's go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's also go, that we may die with him. Lazarus is dead. Let's go to him. Let's die with him. In reality, the the him there in verse 16, it could be Jesus, it could be Lazarus, doesn't really matter. I don't think this is doubting Thomas. I don't think this is sarcastic Thomas. I don't think this is um, Eeyore Thomas. Well, let's go die with him. I think this is devoted Thomas. I think this is courageous Thomas. Even though he's still misunderstood even though he still didn't fully understand the things that Jesus was saying. I think this is faithful, Thomas. And although his belief may falter, it may shake a little bit later, as does ours so often, he's saying, without even really understanding, that to follow Jesus Christ means that you take up your cross and you go and die with him. But this death does not lead to death. It leads to resurrection and life everlasting. Let's go and die with him that we may live forever. And that's the point. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would give us courage to follow Christ. Even into the unknown, even into um, the land that you will show us. even as you make us prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies. I pray that you would give us the faith to follow, the faith to walk in the light as you are the light.
Lord, as our prayer today, that you would strengthen our faith, that we would be rooted and grounded in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.